Let's go ahead and turn in our scriptures today, and that's going to be picking it up where we left off. We're going to be in chapter 23, and our book is 2 Samuel, and we're going to be picking it up in a great area, verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 23, picking it up in verse 8. And so the title of this for those that go online and look or come back later and catch it is simply this mighty men to the end. Last week we hit what was called the epilogue the previous week. Excuse me, last week was the prologue. The week before that was the epilogue, a closing. And then we came back to an opening. And that very often can be a pattern as well in our spiritual life, seeing something that indeed cues us as to something that has happened. It can be a closure, but it's always important to realize that for every closure, the word is very clear about new beginnings. That we can say may be our prologue. Sometimes we would say in our life's journey that it has come to an end. But the question needs to be settled that God determines that. For the believer, that is only the gateway to what he has been doing in our life and living truly through us to express himself to a world that needs to know him. And so when we look at our life experiences, the scriptures are also showing us pictures, as we see here, of what is a battle. It's a series of battles. It's called spiritual warfare. But the Lord chose to mark David's life here by citing men that were faithful to the end. They truly began with him, and they had closure, some in advance of him, some following him. There's always going to be a season in which someone who comes on the scene also will be required to make a change in the scene. While we are a part of the work that God's doing, though, we do want to be a part of the scenery. We want to be seen we want to be effective. We want to be filled with the Spirit, transformed. These areas are disciplines of our spiritual life. You're here today to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happens when we look into the Word and when the Spirit looks into us. And it's actually a marvelous thing because most of us know each other very well. The Lord knows us the best of all. And he's doing something that is marvelous in his eyes. And we're able to say, that's marvelous in my eyes, too. So as this opens up, we're going to see men that have been cited, as you have been cited. The Lord keeps his eye on all of us. And you all have remarkable testimonies with regard to what the Lord has already done, what he's continuing to do until the finish. Mighty men to the end. Let's pick it up in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. 
he had him. Does the Lord have you? In this case, David is a picture, not of a perfect Jesus. There are other pictures in the Bible cited. But being a man after God's own heart and the one by whom the lineage of Jesus would continue to flow, does he have us? David had these men. Many of them had followed him from the time of the pursuit of Saul, endeavoring to take his life. And so they're noted in this account literally as heroic. Not necessarily will we understand everything that each man did, but those that did an extraordinary work to be remembered are the ones that are cited. And the important thing there, too, is that sometimes we feel that we don't get credit for what it is that we've done, even when the Lord has us. And the remedy to that is not making much of ourselves, rather being able to say, I've made much of the Lord. And if he's chosen to put me in the background, if he's chosen to hide me in the shadow areas, then I am fine with his positional, sovereign placement of me. Whatever pleases him, however I am most effective, it's one way that we do not get disturbed when it's easy for us to get perturbed. That means angry. The facilitation of ourselves in the church can be for some an area that God has to work on us with. There were places in which I was highly esteemed and places in which I was to be steamed. Pressure on as in a cooker. People venting as with anger. I experienced both as an educator and I experienced it both as a missionary and as a pastor. It was a course that I believe no one can evade. You can try to outrun it, but God has pretty quick runners coming after you. And so one of the things that we see here are men that run according to God's will, but they stand on the area that God says remain, and they fight. But they don't fight conventionally. They fight spiritually. Oh, we'll see conventional warfare here, but for us it translates into a spiritual battle in which if God is not governing it, the chances of success are less than 50%, whatever that may mean. On the advance right now, it's important to recognize that however these men fall, however you may seem yourself falling, that means in place, in a position, then understand that's where God has you. And it's a good place to be. And you're not to vacate simply because it doesn't seem to be what your mind tells you you deserve. I was only using the illustration personally because even at times when there's great esteem, there's time again where it just settles. The President of the United States is considered to be the biggest number one man in the world. That's what we declare him to be. The most powerful man in the world. But his power is only in his time or tenure serving as the executive officer of the government. When his tenure is over, 
He has no power as a president. Whatever was at his disposal is no longer available. That must be a hard little thing to come down from, too, where you're just a U.S. citizen again. And so David right now is reaching what we would call the apex of his career. And his men will be alongside of him, reaching as well the apex of their career. But let's take a look at some of these things that were done. The first man, Joshab, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. I'm not moving into a name word study right now. But as a nickname, as a warrior, he was Adino. He was that because apparently his feet was taking on 800 men and not a little at a time, one at a time. He's all at once taking care of an enemy force. We could see that being done in today's conventional warfare with a simple weaponry system because of what we have created. But that isn't the case for this. He is a battle-trained warrior, and he's being commended for taking care of a force that was larger than would permit any one of us to even fathom accomplishing. He's the number one guy right now being mentioned. But notice this, for him being number one, there's another one that follows, and that's important too, because there's always someone that follows someone whose exploits are being touted as remarkable. Remember, whatever you may have thought athletically, politically, militarily, in any facet of vocation, if you're following the Lord, you will be following mighty men. Mighty men who indeed will be noted for being faithful to the very end. And it's important to realize that you don't think much of yourself, but you are to take advantage of a perspective that God has on those who precede you. I do not forget those men that have preceded me. And I'm very careful that as I chart their course, I'm not easily taken off my course. I simply choose to believe, Lord, you used that man as an inspiration to the man that I am now. And so all of us, as we see kids go into that showroom, and I still like the name because the Lord is showing us that in that space, he's making room for additional people within this congregation that are going to be adults. I mean, there are trophies that are in there and trophies that are upstairs and they're being fashioned as spiritual warriors. I don't take that for granted. Those who are teaching them are those who are ahead of them, and they're taking note of those teachings that they're getting, the times in prayer, the scriptures that they are hearing. It's no small thing. After him in verse 9, well, it's Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, well, that's what it says, the son of Dodo. 
one might say, that sounds like a bird. It is. It's extinct. It's, it was not noted for getting himself out of a problem. It was like, what is that for? But the other thing is, too, is that um, in our own vernacular, dodo can imply unaccomplished or ineffective. And I'm not citing that for this purpose. I'm not trying to simply have fun with the word. But notice this. If that be true, then it's also very apparent that some of us have felt ineffective, unaccomplished. And yet there's a son that is raised to this man who is raised up by God. What do we do when seemingly, if you would, culturally, we've been a dodo or we have followed dodos or we're in the lineage of dodos? We follow Jesus. That's the point that's being made right now. We're warriors. That's important to understand. Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel retreated. This guy was with David, several others, and they defied the Philistines. It does not say in this sentence that they defeated them. It says they first engaged by defying them. We're not taking this from you. You're a godless people, and we do not regard the threats that you make towards us, but we take a positional stand on what we will not allow you to do. And so this Eleazar is being noted for that, that he with David defied an enemy. We have an enemy. He is called Satan, also reckoned as the devil. Also in poetic verse, Lucifer. He is an enemy of the Lord's. He was the created chief archangel of God, and he turned from God. He exalted himself in pride and was brought low. Hence, he no longer would be known as simply the morning star or the bright one. He would be known as Satan, devil. And so when we look at this defiance right now in this battle, and when others retreated, these men are marked as those who simply stayed. So when you see retreat within the context of your spiritual life, it, one, must be accepted even though it is disappointing, but also you have to understand that that doesn't mean you're going to be the loser. God even more so makes himself ready and available to grant you as a victor. And so in this retreat, there was no one left but David and these men, Eleazar, being commended here. He arose and attacked the Philistines, verse 10, until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. Because these men stuck it out, and in particular Eleazar, who 
is noted now as having a sword in his hand that he gripped so tightly he could not release it. It literally gives you the impression of an embedded sword in his hand grip. And I think you understand where this goes also. And that is, is that when you're engaged in battle, then this word that you hold, that is being taught from, that you have received promises from God to live your life in hopeful expectation, it's a sword. That scripture can be found very easily if you've been studying Ephesians. You're to know your weapon. You're to know how to use your weapon. Ephesians 6 is about, obviously, the spiritual armor that we are to put on. But in verse 17 is where that is noted. You're taking up that sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is what we use. And most of us have found that when we can't find our Bibles, we feel vulnerable. That's why one of the things that I think happened to a couple of us on the beach on Thursday is we were looking for our Bibles. I'm always looking for my Bible. People think that the guitar is the main thing that I'm after. I appreciate it, but when I can't find my Bible, I'm more alarmed with that than I am with a misplaced guitar, even as valuable as that is for me. This is what strengthens me. This is what determines the outcome of the victory that God intends for me. And so for you, if you've ever had your heart just like, oh no, what happened to my Bible, what happened to the sword of the Spirit, then that means you've got a grip on it, and it's got a grip on you. His grip was so tight that probably it would have had to have required a prying off of his hands or hand from that sword. And this is an incredible picture that we see here. Mighty men to the end, those who defy those who take on an adversary that seemingly is larger than you are, that has all the, in my opinion, pictures of confirmation between men that we have seen in the Bible that were outnumbered and seemingly outstrengthened. Odds that were against them became the odds that the Lord favored them in because he gets the glory one of the things that needs to be emphasized, too, is so how do then mighty men finish or remain faithful to the end? Well, one of them is to realize that our God, Jesus, he is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He's the one that is the beginning and the end. You start with him and you finish with him no matter what. You start with him and you finish with him. You do so with weaponry that he says is sufficient, both in the word that he has given you, as well as prayer, as the means by which we communicate and hear from him. Faithfully, and accompanies one of the things that we know as a discipline. We can't do battle without being in company. Company can also be used as a military term. I think it's between 80 and 250 men that form a company. And there's strength in numbers. 
You have a strength today in the numbers that you are ranked among right now. The world is pulling people from the strength of being in company. And so one of the things we want to do is not allow that to be what is our custom. We'll talk about some scriptures closing off today. But let's advance as he is, it says, weary. He's weary, but the sword is stuck to his hand. It means he never gave up. He never quit. He never stopped until the battle was over. Who were the beneficiaries? It says, not necessarily the military, but the people. They were rewarded after him only to the plunder. They returned. Their return ultimately was the reward of the plunder. There are people that have left the company of the church, but they will return if you hold on to your sword. You will vanquish an enemy that is the endeavor of him to destroy the church, and as you remain in place with your sword, they will return for what? The plunder, the fruit of the victory that God has given to you for not quitting, for not leaving, no matter what. This attack that happened identifies it as a wearisome task. Do you get weary? Chances are, the Lord says, you're a mighty man. You're mighty. I remember that one of the things my brother said to me as a younger man, and he was a Vietnam vet, and rather extraordinary from what we've discovered him, a Brown Star recipient and some other noteworthy honors, is that he refused to take R&R, rest and relaxation, because what he found is that those who were taking rest and relaxation, when they came back from their tenure in Hawaii or whatever it may be, Philippines, whatever it may have been, to revive, they lost their battle tenacity. They had relaxed so well that they no longer were keen on the tactics of the enemy. And so David realized that they basically were vulnerable. He never took R&R. It was something that was available to him. They would fly these guys out, hopefully to take on an, a, a breathing time, get your muscles you know, loosened up. But David saw that for everyone that was going to R&R, taking themselves off the battlefield to rest, they were the ones soon coming back into combat that were picked off, taken out. They would die. They took rest and relaxation, and ultimately they died on their return. So it's noteworthy right now that you don't rest and simply relax spiritually. You stay in the battle. You hold on. Let it hold on to you. There'll be a time in which that rest comes. It is called heaven. And that's when all of the armor can drop because we will have been perfected and we will have been taken up to be with him. But until that time, R&R can be very dangerous for the church, just resting and relaxing. We need to be engaged with one another and engaged with the enemy. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. 
So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. This next man is citing for being right in the center of it all. And some would say, why over a lentil field, a bean field? And that's one of the things that we need to understand. What may not be precious or significant to any of us is to God. And if he would show a man that centers himself in what others would say, why? Worthless. Why would you risk yourself for something that could be evaluated as worthless? You have a picture here. This man didn't think so. God's heart was with him. So too can be the center of God's will. What is the center of God's will for your life? And is it because maybe others have critiqued it as not so much, rather irrelevant, worthless, that it's not for you to stay there? That's not true. This guy stuck right in the center. He didn't go to the margin, too, where it'd be easy to do what? Flee. If you're right in the center of combat, then the same direction that you would take, whatever direction that is, is the same. Left, right, forward, backwards. If you're trying to get to the peripheral to get out of it, to make a safe, if you would, keeping of yourself, you're in the same predicament, right in the center. It's where you get to see what ultimately God alone can do in protecting you as you protect what? His assets. It's the Lord's. Never esteem lightly what God has esteemed, esteemed highly. You're to take every measure to respect the territory that God has given and let him be the one who manages that estate. I like that picture of this guy. The Philistines would flee. He defended it, killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Verse 13, then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of, of Abdullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Now, because this is being cited, we know that this was early on with David, when he was, in fact, fleeing from Saul. So the perspective may be is that these are the young exploits of these younger men in their prime. And that's important. There is a time in which the exploits of younger men seem to be extraordinary. But the question would be, can we be older men and women and have great exploits with the Lord? And that's where I would say, yeah, we can be young at heart. We saw just a couple chapters ago where David, even as what may be the closing of his life, went out into battle and the men saw that he could have been endangering himself, but his heart was to go strong until the end. And they said, no, in this case, you can't go into battle anymore, David. We've seen you. We've followed you. We know you. That's where you desire. But we're going to protect you. And that's what the Lord does. He calls that time in which where he places us is for the best for everyone. And so as we look at this again, this is one of those occasions in which three men seeing a need, they risk themselves to satisfy that need. What was the need? 
David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines, verse 14, was then in Bethlehem. And it says, And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Note what they do. They listen. Verse 16, So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. The sacrifice of risking their life for the king, David, whom they had heart-to-heart connection with, he poured out. And it tells us why he did that. And here's why he did it. He said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Sometimes when we see noble works performed and we've been a part of it, and all of a sudden, seemingly as it's delivered, as we had the heart to do that, it seems to get poured out before the Lord. And one of the things we need to realize is that does not mean it's not notable. David was worshiping God in an act of acknowledging the incredible valor of these men. They could have said, oh, brother, we risked our life for nothing. It's been swallowed up by the ground. And so men of faith, women of faith, need to not take things personally because of something that you did sacrificially, maybe at great risk to yourself, you need to understand that on the other end of that, reciprocating is someone who's honoring the Lord in a special way. Changes do happen, and I've discovered that we don't like change very often. But it doesn't mean that change hasn't been authorized by the Lord. In this case, the change was in David's heart. He thirsted for the water from the wells of Bethlehem that were at the gate. The gate would have been a fortified sector because that would have been the place where you would be checked in or scrutinized. It was a defense quarter of the city. So these guys went right up. I mean, right up. And if you've obviously ever imagined or looked into or read about a well, it usually has a bucket or something that is lowered into the tunneled section where the water is lower than the ground, squeaky wheels, a squeaky whatever, a clanging of of the bucket against the sides. And this is what they did. How did they do it? My thoughts are since it was protected, but we don't see any outcome of an engagement, is that the Lord just allowed them to do that. It doesn't indicate that there was any engagement. But we know that militarily it would have been protected. The Lord probably just put the enemy to sleep. While these men exercise a valiant sacrificial act of supplying water to their leader. And so one of the things that we also can see is that you will be called to do by your heart sacrificial things for Jesus, your leader. And you'll do it because you love him. You'll do it because that's what you want to do is serve him. You'll do it even at your peril. 
only at times to find that like these men, it seemingly is poured out. It doesn't say that David thanked them. It says that what he did do was honor the Lord and pouring it out as his offering. So that's what you would call the release factor in spiritual life. You just release it. You just let go and see what God wants to do with it. Because men and women are all trying to honor the Lord. And this actually shows you how much David honored and loved these men who would do this at their own peril. I like the picture there. The gate they went right up to. The dipper, they lowered it down. And I know this, it must have been a bit of water because you wouldn't probably have taken just a dipper and tried to run back to David with it. Probably a bucket. Extraordinary work that they're commended for. Even as David yet pours it out to the Lord, far be it from me. Verse 18 Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. One of the things that we get wrong is we have to attain to a certain accomplishment. He's being cited for doing a great thing, but it doesn't seem to be that he fully attained to what maybe he could have attained to. That's not citing him for being ineffective. It's basically saying we have to be careful about saying, because I didn't reach this point, I've been unsuccessful. Because I didn't make it to that goal that I had, I'm a dodo. No, it doesn't mean that at all. You did what you did. You're doing what God's called you to do. You've made a name for yourself because God's given you a name for yourself. And very often we, we punish ourselves, and God had no intention of that, by thinking less of ourselves. In the context of the Lord, we always have to think the most of him, and our boast is in him. This is the picture that's being granted. He's being noted as a mighty man and yet not attaining to what the other three have been cited for. So don't be hard on yourself because you haven't made it to that goal. We all have goals. And as long as we're moving towards them and as long as we're doing so, trying to live out our lives honoring the Lord, then just relax not in the way of R&R, but truly just taking note that you've done what you can do. And you'll let God do with you what he wants to. I like that picture. He did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoda and the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. This is an enemy. And this enemy, two of them, are described as lion-like. Notice this. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. How did he take on an enemy who, by twos, were lion-like? It's because on another occasion, he had already been involved with an authentic lion in a pit 
on a snowy day. Who would do that? Did he stumble and fall into a pit that happened to house a lion and on a snowy day? I mean, those are like factors you'd have to almost imagine or comic book. But part of the things that we know is the hardships that the Lord allow us to fall into and be threatened by are also the training episodes by which he is building us up. Why? Because in this case, there were two lion-like adversaries that he took on because of the training of being in that pit. Where does he go? He doesn't. What does he do? He has to face off with that lion and take it on on a snowy day. Man, it's cold. I mean, the circumstance that he had been in is so extraordinary that you have to believe that there was only one decision. There's only one thing coming out of this pit, and it's either that thing or it's me. And he chose to fight it out. And he was endued with God because that's how spiritual beings are. They have to say, I'm in a predicament. I'm walled in on a snowy day. I'm not getting out of this without God, but I'm also going to be trained by the Lord in this predicament because I don't know what's ahead. I don't know how the enemy is going to engage me in battle, but because he had experience with a lion, I would suggest probably to you, these other two men were nothing. (laughs) You guys call yourselves lion-like? That's what others may see you as. You're just a kitty cat. Two of you, you're going down. By the training that he chose to remain in and by solving the problem by killing that lion, he was prepared ultimately for that which was awaiting him. I like that picture. It also indicates that he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he went down to him with a staff, rusted the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Two Moabite lion-like figures, an Egyptian who is like a giant. And because he had moved in sequence from one challenge to the other, he had victory over this offender. These things Beniah, verse 22, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Not attaining to the first three, but guess what he gets to be? He gets to be chosen personally by David to be overseeing the guards of David. That's no small appointment. That's why attaining sometimes to a level that really is not what God is requiring you at all to do. If you settle in that, then you're able to be appointed to the other, which is extraordinary, to be next to the king, still overseeing. And what does it matter whether it has anything to do with what you attained to do? I may think I could be a great president of the United States, attaining to it, but chances are that's not going to happen. And even if I did, you guys would be saying, why did you do that? You were doing pretty good as a pastor, but now you're a dodo. You haven't done nothing. You haven't done nothing for us. You haven't done anything for yourself. 
You're just a dodo. These things Benaiah the son Jehoiada did. He didn't. He won a name. And he was appointed by David to be over his guard. Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. And then the list continues from verse 24 through 38, naming them. Closing off with also an important name in verse 39, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, you might remember, was a mighty man of David who served him faithfully, who had a wife named Bathsheba. And he, in the course of David's falling out, was killed in combat that was staged. Though that was an outcome that he never would have expected, that we also would say was a betrayal to him for serving David faithfully, he is cited here as a mighty man. And so there can be consequences even in spiritual life. And it can seemingly indicate termination. But David right now, in this lineage of mighty men, who alongside of him served God faithfully, God doesn't forget. He doesn't forget any accomplishment. He does not forget any person in what they've done, no matter how a change may affect ultimately an outcome that was never expected. It's really important for that. We need to make allowance for that. So where does this all conclude? And that's what we're going to do right now. Mighty men to the end. Beginning with Jesus, point one, finishing with Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Point two, you remain faithfully in company. The scriptures give us some very clear instructions on that. And notably is what we're told in the book of Hebrews, not forsaking the assembly, one to another words, in other words, being in company, You'll want to be reminded of that. I'm going to go there very quickly so that you can cite it. And so in Hebrews, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Why is it important to remain in good company and in company and fellowship? not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Here's the reason. The ability for us to exhort one another. So much more as you see the day approaching. That's a capital D. That's Hebrews. That is chapter 10. And it's picking it up in verse 23 to the close, at least for this application to verse 25. The day is approaching. We need to be together. We ought not be forsaking for any reason the assembly. Oh, there are some medical reasons for that, protectively. But in these days, they don't get better. But God ought to get bigger. And he does that by us staying in a connection with one another. Really important to realize that. Remain faithfully in company. Verse 3, use your weapon and know how to use it. Military guys, one of their training exercises was assembly and disassembly of their weapon. And they had to be able to do it and perform it in a such and such time. 
and blindfolded. They got to know it so well that they could do it blindfolded. And until they could do it, then they would remain at it. That's what we're to do. We're to know our weapon of warfare, the Bible. It's important to understand how it works, how God works in it for us, and how we are to be those who handle it with precision on any occasion. Verse or fourth point to make in closing, 2 Corinthians 3, strongholds are to be pulled down, and that's a picture of Jericho. They're to be pulled down God's way, and so you pray. The strongholds are meant for destruction, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that was a church that became corrupted, and Paul says, this is the way you take it on. When there's division and contentions and strife and schisms within the church, that's a stronghold that needs to pull, be pulled down. What we do, what's become the manner of the church, is to pull down people, to pull them apart, to move continually in a justification of division. That's not what we're to do. The stronghold is what Satan does within the minds and the personalities of people. And we have to understand that people are not our enemy. They may be unique. They may be those that we do not get along with. But God loves them. And God's doing a work in their life. So I have to always be reminded that when I have something against someone, chances are that they or another has something against me. The stronghold needs to be dealt with by the pulling down, and it's through prayer, and it's asking God, what adjustment do I need in my life, in this battle that I'm in, and what I think about someone, what I've done to somebody, what somebody's done to me? I don't want to be the cause of an unnecessary injury. It can happen, though. But that's one of the things that's key here when we look at to this. In closing, maybe this could be a good rhyme for you. Men of the same mind are one of a kind. Are you one of a kind with men and women who have the same mind? That's an important analysis. One of a kind. People see us and they go, you guys are extraordinary. I know you, you, you. I've seen you. And you seem to be like-minded. You seem to have the same heart for the work of God. Why? What is it that causes you to be someone that is above all the junk? And the answer is, is that we are like-minded. We do have the heart of the Lord and for each other. It's an important discipline. This one-of-a-kindness comes by being in unity and ultimately submitted to the one who's called us to be in unity. It's really important, and it's a work. We can find ourselves at times striving to be so distinct and to also believe that spirituality is about harmony. Well, harmony does come, but it's not necessarily the mark of weighing out somebody's spirituality because we're meant to be stones that literally are living and we're tumbled together. And there's stuff that's being worked on within us. The hard edges of each one of our lives, our personalities, are refined by the tumbling. One against the other. He's an artisan. He makes gems of stones. 
you know, this stuff that you step into the river and you look so ridiculous going out there because it's, it's like your feet are being cut and you're not yet floating above it, but it's not comfortable. It's different than when you step on a shoreline in which the rocks have been tumbled by the waves one upon the other and they become refined and smooth. That's a different work, but it's because those stones got worked on and God's working on you as living stones. And so we want to have the Lord have his way with us so that what we're like-minded and we're one of a kind. And by the way, being one of a kind takes kindness and that's a fruit that the Lord bears by his spirit. So there you go on that list of mighty men, really a few that were highlighted, the others that followed. So whether you're highlighted or whether you're following, God has his eyes on you and you are significant. You are important and you must not let emotion ever overwhelm you to say, you know, the margin's good. You take that bean field and you plant yourself in the center. You hold that sword and you have a grip on it to where it has to be pried from your hand or to whether it's the first thing that you're looking for. I don't look for my guitar. I wonder about it. I do like it. It's the Bible that when I can't find it, I'm actually just torn. And then it's like calling security, calling on flashlights, everybody missing Bible posters. How many have seen those out? You don't see them. We ought to. Hey, I'm missing my Bible. This is what it looks like. Find it for me, please, so that I can find my way and be pleasing. 